Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earl. We're here today with Dr. Sarah Mackay to talk about the Women's Brain Book. We're going to be demystifying the female brain. Dr. Mackay is an Oxford-educated, respected neuroscientist and the founder of the Neuroscience Academy. She specializes in translating brain science into simple, actionable strategies for peak performance, creativity, health, and well-being. She writes for numerous publications and has been published extensively for the professional audience. We're going to be talking today about her book on the female brain, and specifically, we're going to look at the female brain going through puberty and adolescence and what the neuroscience shows. We're going to look at the research on mood changes during puberty and also at the differences in IQ and verbal fluency and mathematical abilities between males and females in adolescence. And we're also going to look at the effects of the birth control pill on the adolescent brain and what the latest neuroscience research shows about that. We're also going to see a different way to think about risk, whether teenagers are risky, whether boys really take more risks than girls, and how we even define risks in the first place. We're going to look at the research on rumination and negative thoughts and how there are differences in those patterns between males and females and what that means. So a lot of really interesting stuff coming up. Can't wait to discuss all that and more. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Wow. All right. You clearly did a lot of work on this book. You've been researching this topic forever. And you said you got into this from an article that you were writing on brain fog. Talk to me about the story behind this. How did this whole thing start, this interest of yours? Yeah, well, I've been working in some form or another within neuroscience, studying, teaching, researching neuroscience, essentially my whole career. But neuroscience is this enormous topic. It's broad, it's deep, it's rich, it's complex. And I have to confess, up until the time I started writing the book, I hadn't really started to explore this concept of the so-called, and I don't really like the title, the female brain, rather taking a look at brain biology through the lens of being a girl and a woman and vice versa, looking at my life as as a female through the lens of neurobiology. That didn't really come about at all, despite having worked in neuroscience for 25 years. But the, the idea really came about, as you say, I, I, um, I was approached by a book publisher, by a very charismatic woman, Jeanne Rickmans, who went on to become my, my agent, um, who said, do you want to write a book? And I said, no, not really. And she said, oh, go on, let's meet for a <laughs> chat. Because um, I knew that if I was going to write a book, it, it would have to be 
about something I didn't know a lot about that I was really super curious and I just didn't want to write about things I already knew I wanted to research <laughs> and get my teeth into a topic yeah and and so we we literally was sitting over coffee chatting and she said well tell me what you've written before that has really resonated with an audience and it was this previous article I'd written for the ABC here in Australia which is kind of like at the BBC in the UK um, on menopause and brain fog and why many women think that they are developing dementia when they experience some of this brain fog through through the menopause. And she said, well, write a book on menopause. And I was like, well, I'm in my early 40s. That's a bit weird. <laughs> my mum did that once. No, thanks. And then she said something about baby brain and pregnancy. And, and I roundly dismissed that idea. I, I'm, a, I'm a New Zealander. I grew up in New Zealand. And we're very pragmatic and Things like baby brain don't exist. Pull our socks up and get on with things. But as she, as as I thought, neuroscience, menopause, neuroscience, pregnancy, I thought, you know what? There's perhaps something in there around taking a look at the female lifespan, taking a womb-to-tomb look at aspects of the female lifespan through the lens of neuroscience. And so I very, very quickly wrote a chapter outline, which, of course, included, you know, infancy and childhood and puberty and the teenage years and, and so on um, and it was that that's kind of how the book came about and for me really it was just this fantastic journey of, of research and, and discovery Okay, I thought there were some really interesting things on puberty. Mm. You looked at a lot of research. Is puberty starting at younger ages now? I hear people talking about this a lot, how, you know, it seems like every year it's getting younger and younger, right? The age of puberty. What's the research show about that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really, really interesting question. And I think, you know, <laughs> you're always going to read about the, the startling outliers in any you know, life events, you're always going to read about the multiple births. You're always going to read about the little poor little girl who gets taken shopping for a bra for the first time when she's eight years old. You, you yeah. always hear about the extremes and we have really, really good data on this. Now it does vary slightly in different countries around the world, but largely speaking, when we think about puberty starting in girls, the age that if we talk about what we, we call menarche, which is the age at which a girl gets her first period, that has dropped somewhat, but not perhaps as much as people may think over the last couple of hundred years. When we, we kind of go back a couple of hundred years, girls are probably getting their first period at maybe 14, 15. Now it's much more likely to be around 11 and 12. And it's been around those ages since about the 1950s or 1960s. It hasn't changed that much. And we think oh. a lot of that change was around just generalized public health, better nutrition, better awareness of disease, better awareness of um, general health and well-being. And that's kind of brought that age of menarche down to quite perhaps a healthy normal. What we have started to see in some parts of the world is breast development and little girls happening at slightly younger ages. And there is a bit mm. of a shift, but that varies quite a lot depending on which country in the world you're looking at and, of course, which um, ethnic background of the girl that you're looking at because Caucasian girls don't tend to grow breasts as early as girls who may be of African-American background. Girls of Asian background might be growing breasts slightly later. So it does vary. So yeah. 
when we talk about when puberty begins, we have to be quite precise about that and look at the data. Periods are starting earlier than they used to a couple of hundred years ago, but not any earlier than they were in the 1960s. So I think we're kind of on safe ground there. What's causing this early but still probably normal breast development in some girls, there's lots of theories around that. Perhaps some of it is around obesity being slightly overweight perhaps some of it is around the food that's being eaten some of it could be around stress but it yeah. varies quite a lot globally yeah and so does things start changing like emotionally during puberty it seems like we associate that with all the mood swings is that because of the hormones the hormones start flooding in and then the mood swings kind of start as a result of that yeah look i think that that's probably one of the biggest myths out there around hormones and around females and around the brain and certainly when I went into writing my book I thought the book was going to be a lot around hormones and the role that they play in terms of how we think how we yeah, feel yeah. and how we behave and I always and I talk about this at the very beginning of my book and teach this all of the time and I'm always talking about it we if we think about the brain the brain is receiving constant streams of data from hundreds of different sources from within our body so yeah. that includes our hormones, but it also includes the food we eat and the muscles that we're moving and our, um, the amount of oxygen and carbon dioxide in our blood, our pH, our body temperature. Right. There's a lot of signals coming in from our body. There's also yeah. this constant stream of signals coming in from the outside world, whether that be, is it light outside? Is it dark outside? Who are the other yeah. people out there? Are there some types of stressful events? And then, of course, because we're humans, we have this enormous prefrontal cortex we have to add into that what we might call our mind or our psychology, our thoughts, the meaning that we're making of all of these signals. So when we look at what's happening in puberty, of course, we have this quite striking change whereby in a girl, um, there's a signal from the brain down to the ovaries that it's time to start heading down towards your reproductive life and to start producing hormones. And we sort of see monthly cycles start to emerge. And if that's happening at around ages, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, and, and most girls, that's around the time we start to see puberty happening. There's an awful lot going on at that point in the lifespan as well. Right. So, of course, we've got the hormones, but we've also got a lot of the body changes that we see taking place. We've got the meaning someone's making of the changes taking place in their body and also the context that those changes are taking place in comparison to friends. We're seeing, and it depends where you live in the world, what uh, specific year that happens, but we see that transition from primary school or elementary school through to high school or secondary school. We see significant shifts taking place in friendship groups. We see a whole lot of things happening there. <laughs> so simply to go, hormones cause bad moods, oh. one doesn't take into account all of the many, many, many changes that are taking place in the lives of young teenagers, whether they be boys or whether they be girls. And particularly for girls, it completely sets up a wrong and often lifelong narrative that any time she's feeling grumpy, cranky, oh, angry, yes, bad, yes. let's blame hormones. And that removes Emotional. any agency from sort of taking a look at but what else is what else is going on. There's this really um, yeah. great study which kind of almost illustrates this in even more detail, there's an Australian longitudinal study of childhood um, that's been going on here in Australia for, for a number of years, tracking children as they go through childhood, adolescence and into their older years. And it's been looking 
at the emergence of what we might call this kind of emotional turmoil of adolescence mm, yeah. and looking to see the relationship between that and hormone status. And what we see, if you think about a young girl going through puberty, a little girl who perhaps her breasts start growing and maybe she gets her period at 10, early but still completely normal and healthy. Now she's probably going to be more vulnerable to develop mood disorders compared to a girl who perhaps goes through that same experience at age 12 around the same time as her friendship group. But what happens when a boy goes through puberty? You get a boy who enters puberty before his friends, gets taller, bigger, musclier, hairier, and he rises in social stature amongst his friendship group. And he's, in a sense, protected against the development of mood disorders versus the little boy. And we all had one in our class, think back to high school, that guy who didn't start growing until he was about 16. He's far more vulnerable. So what have you got there? You've got young people all experiencing hormones for the first time, but their emotional experience is dependent Mm. on their friendship group, on the social context they're in, how they perceive changes in their own body taking place in relationship to other people, not simply hormone behavior or hormone emotion. Right. And the timing of the onset, uh, you point out in your book also, there's one study you talk about uh, girls who experience early puberty are more likely to suffer from depression than late bloomers, but that mm-hmm. doesn't happen to early developing boys. Instead, boys mm-hmm. are more susceptible to depression if they go through later. Yeah, and 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 again here, it's not simply we we and we and this happens. It doesn't matter at which point in the lifespan whether we're talking about males and females or ovaries or testes, testosterone, estrogen, it is very, very hard and nearby impossible to draw a really straight, neat line between hormone and emotion. It's almost always contextual. And essentially what hormones often do is perhaps dial up or dial down the volume or the treble or the bass and all of the things that are taking place in a changing brain. I, I think it would be far more useful for many people to start thinking about hormones kind of opening up this this great phase of plasticity in teenagers' brains, whereby things like social context, social cognition really, really matter because that's essentially what the hormones are doing. They're switching on all of those parts of the brain, all that circuitry that's involved in the development of sexual behaviours, but also really importantly, the development of social cognition. So, you know, we've all heard about the differences in terms of the um, ability to rotate objects in your mind and the mathematical Mm -hmm. abilities and how Mm -hmm. boys develop those so much earlier. Um, So what's going on with that? that, Isn't that is that based on hormones or what? Well, it's kind of curious because we only ever seem to hear about the skills that males appear to do better in than females. Uh, we never hear about the skills where the feet. Yeah, we never hear about what the about skills of females. What about those skills? Yeah, where yeah, are those yeah, at? Yeah. <laughs> well, I think what's what's really, really, really important no, is empathy, once again. Uh, they're, they're good at like yeah. being being nurturing and <laughs> yeah. motherly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, if we look at overall cognitive scores, um, and we look at you know a whole battery of different types of, of cognitive tests you can do. Yeah. What we're only ever looking at is, is the difference in, in, in averages, the difference between we look yeah. at a thousand girls and a thousand boys. We might see 
a really, really slight difference between the means, but we've got tons and tons and tons of overlap in those skills. We do actually see um, this ability to rotate a 3D object in your mind's eye. The average male is perhaps slightly better at that than the average female, but that doesn't mean that plenty of girls aren't really good at that and plenty of guys aren't really hopeless at that. <laughs> we don't know whether that slight difference in mean, the mean difference that we see comes about simply because of hormones does it come about via some kind of patterning that takes place in utero whereby testosterone released from the, the, the infant's male testes somehow patterns the brain to be able to rotate a 3d object or is it something to do with with childhood play something to do with behavior something to do with learning similarly as i said there's, there's plenty of cognitive skills that on average women may be slightly better at the men and one of them is remembering a list of words or being able to um, retell a story that was told to you 10 minutes ago and to try and remember all the details of that. We don't really know because we're looking at humans and we're super complicated where those differences emerge. How much is gene? How much is environment? What's nature? What's nurture? Right. It's probably a combination of the two. And I think most, most, most importantly to realise is that we couldn't open up the skull of a random human and look at their brain and go, that's a boy, that's a girl, that's a male, that's a female, by the structure or even the functioning of virtually all of that brain. Most of the differences are pretty subtle and most of the differences are around microcircuitry that is involved in things like circuits involved with ovulation. Obviously, the dudes don't have them and the girls do. Oh, We're really sense. looking yeah. at quite subtle differences there, yeah. Ovulation is also, of course, an interesting topic and just mm -hmm. fertility in general. And you talk about birth control. And um, I think that's a topic that comes up with parents and teenagers and starting birth control and having that conversation uh, with daughters. And I wonder mm. what parents should kind of, you know, think about or consider uh, in terms of the neuroscience and just how, you know, that. Uh, affects the female body yeah look I think that's a, that's a really enormous big and important topic and there's obviously lots of different types of contraception but I assume we're here talking about the oral contraceptive pill as being perhaps the most relevant in terms of thinking does it in any way change the brain is it good is it bad is it neutral and there have been luckily um, in, more, in more recent years quite a lot of studies done on this and a lot of them have been pulled from Scandinavian countries where they mm. have really, really detailed healthcare records for every, every person in the country and they can pull all of the data from those studies. So studies have been done, for example, of 800,000 women looking at the effects of the oral contraceptive pill on the subsequent emergence of perhaps mood disorders, depression and perhaps... Um, prescription of antidepressants to take a look and see and what's really interesting is when you look at the data and you stratify out by age you see quite different not not enormous differences between people on the pill and people not on the pill but we do start to see differences emerge between two groups the younger that the 
girls or women are when they start taking the pill. So if we look at, say, a group of adult women who are all in their 30s and half of them start taking the pill and half of them don't, we don't really see when we're looking at these studies of 800,000 women any real difference in the development of subsequent mood disorders whatsoever. And that data is pretty clear. But there are differences, although not enormous differences, but there are differences in much younger teenagers. So if we look at groups of girls aged between and sorry about my loose language here, girls and women. I'm not intentionally being loose with my language, but for the purposes of this podcast, it's easiest to, to go with that. If we look at um, girls between age 14 and 16 who have started taking the pill at that age, we do see that there are more girls who are on the oral contraceptive pill subsequently being diagnosed with depression and being given antidepressants yeah. compared to girls not on the pill. But the absolute difference in risk is not actually that enormous. If we had 100 girls on the pill, four of them would subsequently be diagnosed with depression and given an antidepressant. We have 100 girls not on the pill. We're seeing one girl. So the difference is really only three out of 100 girls. We're going from four out of 100 versus one out of 100. So we've still got about 90. 90 it's still got a pretty good sense. Yeah. So yeah. I think we can tend to zoom in and focus in on the negative headlines and and kind of worry worry about that and and also we have to remember that a lot of the time this data is reporting and this is getting kind of into the nitty-gritty of science communication we're not looking at the reports of absolute risk and the absolute risk here is from one in a hundred one in a hundred girls to four in a hundred girls ages four to 16 and that virtually disappears by the time you get through to your mid-20s so there are a lot of things that contribute to your any particular emotional state or any particular sure. mood disorder. There's yeah, many yeah, shades yeah. of blue. Hormones are one voice in the crowd, but there are other voices in the crowd which are a whole lot louder. And we kind of touched on that when we talked about puberty and social context. Other people and your perception of yourself and what's going on in your social context is a far greater indicator of any health state, particularly your mood or your emotional state. Parenting experts today talk a lot about the neuroscience of the teenage brain and the emotions and the prefrontal cortex not being mature yet. So Um, not being able to regulate the emotions. And I thought it was interesting in your book, you talk about um, what teenagers actually think when you talk to them about the teenage brain and neuroscience. So is that a good idea to talk to a teenager and um, lecture them all about how the teenage brain works? Well, I'm not entirely sure whether lecturing teenagers about how anything works (laughs) usually goes down too well. I think... It is really, really disappointing to me as a neuroscientist and as someone who talks about a lot of these ideas and our relevance to our everyday lives is that the teenage brain is often dismissed or derided or isn't an oxymoron. Teenagers don't have brains or they're half developed and it's so yeah. dismissive and judgmental. We that sounds really condescending. It's like, it's oh, so your, con- t- your and, brain, and it's so limited, you know, it's really, teenagers, it's yeah, stifled. They, don't, yeah. they, they notice and they're not interested because right, often yeah. it is yeah. so, so patronizing. We would never talk about toddlers' brains 
in the same way as a as a as an infant and a toddler starts to learn language we wouldn't go no. well they can't speak properly yet that's because their brain's half developed right. that child hasn't learned to walk yet because their brain hasn't figured out how to walk yet we wouldn't there's no other group of people <laughs> at any point in the lifespan which we would be so dismissive about and kind of be so reductionist and go oh it's because their brain's half developed I like to think about their brains as going through this incredibly exquisite phase of learning and plasticity where all of the experiences that they have really, really matter. And they are almost at their peak of learning so many of these new skills, just as an infant and a toddler around the age of 18 months is going through this explosion of learning new words and being able to learn to speak and their brains are, are just absolutely tuned and, and have this like a sponge to learn. So are teenagers' brains. They're learning mm. about emotional regulation. They're learning about empathy. They're thinking constantly about what other people are thinking about them and what that means for themselves. They're thinking about what other people are feeling and what that means to them. Yeah. Have you ever tried to redo the calculus that you learned when you were at high school Ooh, or rewrite wow. some of those history essays or you know done some kind of chemistry experiment that you could do back then? Yeah. Teenagers are at their peak of learning. They have this, uh, this remarkably plastic brain, which is primed to be able to do all kinds of things with yeah. great ease and with great speed that we kind of lose as we get a l- little bit older. So I, I don't think it's any surprise that the common narrative around the, the half-developed or undergoing renovation to teenage brain is dismissed by teenagers because it's... <laughs> they're smart enough to know it's not very kind I think we should be praising them for going through this this phase of opportunity that they're going through and, and help them tap into and provide the right kind of experiences and resources for them to thrive through that rather than dismiss them we're here with Dr. Sarah Mackay talking about the neuroscience of teenage girls and we're not done yet Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. If you have months and months on end of disrupted sleep, you feel really, really bad. And even the dudes should know what it's like. It's a really, really hot night. You don't tend to sleep as deeply. You have crazy dreams. It takes longer to fall asleep. Because what you actually need to fall asleep and sleep soundly is for your body temperature to drop off. You're not sleeping soundly, brain fog is almost an inevitable consequence. So, you know, this was as much about talking about how we discuss risk and how we often frame it down these kind of more traditional gendered roles. The boys are taking the risk by driving the car fast. The girls aren't taking the risks because they're sort of sitting quietly. What we need to be doing is encouraging perhaps girls to take more risks in situations where it might be smart for them to do, but they've been socialised out of that. For example, yeah. standing up from the from the group and putting your hand up in class and making a statement, which may have a lot of other people disagree with you. Back last term when they were all at school and he caught the bus, catches the bus home, and it's about kind of a kilometre and a half away from the house and he rings me on the bus he's like oh, I'm really tired mum can you come and pick me up and I'm like of oh, course darling because I work from home like, I'll do anything for you just I'll, I'll come and pick you up and I drive him home and he comes home and he goes upstairs and he gets out of his school uniform and he comes back downstairs and he's changed and he's got a rugby ball under his arm and he says oh, I'm going to meet my mates at the oval 
which is a kilometre in the opposite direction. <laughs> and I'm like, do you want do you want me to drive you? He's like, no, I'll walk. <laughs> and off he goes. And I <laughs> and he left and I was just, and all I could think was he is so developmentally normal. And I suppose <laughs> perhaps there could be, I could think, well, isn't he selfish? But he's not. What's driving him, what's motivating him more than anything is, is being with his friends. It's not, it's not about me. I've raised a completely developmentally normal child that at this point in time, his focus is not on the family nest. It's to spread his wings and to figure out who he is and who are his mates and how lucky does he is he to have these mates who live within walking distance from home that he can go and kick a football round with. And so instead of, you know, telling him off for being selfish, I'm just... I just think, gosh, I'm so lucky that I've raised a kid who's behaving in precisely the way he should be at this age based on what I understand about teenagers and their brains. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get access to all the interviews I've conducted as well as new episodes weeks before the general public. It's completely affordable and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening.